Hi, and welcome to the podium. This is a place where we celebrate the best from the world of motorsport. My name is Jason Skylas, and we got yet another huge edition of our show to bring you. On this edition, we are going to be speaking with a person that has had a 50-year motorsport career. He has competed in NASCAR, IndyCar, sports cars. He's even come down to Australia a few times and had a go at a few different things here. I speak, of course, of Scott Pruitt. And Scott Pruitt is going to be joining us shortly to reflect on that 50-year motorsport career and share some of those awesome stories from that time. So Scott Pruitt will be joining us shortly. And a little later on the show, we'll be joined with one of the co-owners of Triple Eight Race Engineering, Jessica Dane. And Jessica Dane has been very busy in 2021. Not only has she increased her involvement in the Triple Eight Race Engineering team, she has also been working on the broadcast coverage for ARG and also completing a law degree. And Jessica's going to be joining us a little later on to talk about how she manages to balance all of those things and why Triple Eight has been so strong in season 2021 in the Supercars Championship. So it's a huge edition of the show. Uh, just before we get started, though, I want to say a huge thanks to all the people that have been tuning in. I was looking at some of the numbers recently. This show has been streamed by people in 90 different countries. So a special thanks to all of the people that have made that possible. If you're new to this, welcome. Head over to the homepage of where you're listening to this podcast and you can catch up on some of the previous interviews that we've done on the podium. Let's talk about this edition of the podium though now. And right after this, we're going to be joined with Scott Pruitt right here on the podium. This is the podium where we celebrate the best from the world of motorsport. And our next guest, it's very hard to know how to introduce him. He has had a 50-year motorsport career. He's competed in IndyCar, NASCAR, sports cars, a whole variety of different motorsport categories. I'm very pleased to announce that Scott Pruitt joins us on the podium. Scott, thanks so much for joining us. Jason, great to be here. Hi to my family at home. <laughs> there we go. That's your famous catchphrase. Good to see you open with it, Scott. Now, Scott, like I said, they're hard to know where to begin with your career. 50 years in motorsport. Let's go all the way back to the very beginning for this little walk down Victory Lane. Talk about your childhood and your passion for motorsport. I understand you grew up down at a ranch and, um, yeah, Dad was an engineer. Talk about that childhood. Well, um, thanks, Jason. It was, um, you know, it was you know, born and raised in Northern California. We're five generations from this area. Northern California being we're about two hours north of San Francisco. And uh, great-grandfather was a farmer, uh, grandfather was a farmer, my dad was a farmer, and then went into aerospace, um, kind of there, worked for a company called Aerojet Liquid uh, Rocket Company. Uh, their claim to fame that people would know is they built the re-entry re um, engines on the space shuttle. So the space shuttle, as it's circling around the Earth, is upside down, uh, and then they built the engines that actually turned the space shuttle uh, from upside down to right side up and bring it down into orbit. So that was always a big thing going on at the house. And so my dad and I uh, got, you know, my brother involved in, in racing go-karts. I uh, did my first race when I was uh, eight years old and, um, you know, started winning on a, on a local level, uh, started winning on a, um, on a regional level, starting winning on a, on a state level. And then I won my first national title um, when I was 12 years old. So, um, just a lot of a lot of great years of, of, of racing go-karts. So, you know, you got involved in go-karts. Were you much of a motorsport fan before that? Were you watching races as a kid? Were there drivers that you looked up to? Of, of course. I mean, I you know, racing was always on, especially in May. Indy 500 um, was always that staple. I mean, here we are racing. And when you're racing go-karts, you, you know, you, you may be racing – Friday or at one track and Saturday is a different track and Sunday is a different track. So we are gone racing all the time. It wasn't, I don't come from a racing background like an Hunter or an Andretti, nor do I come from a wealthy background. So 
Um, I just had to make as much uh, opportunity as I could and try and win as much as I could. Um, but I always looked up to those guys. Probably my biggest hero would be Dan Gurney, um, uh, Mickey Lauda, um, and even one of the guys I got to race against, Mario Andretti. Uh, very talented, uh, incredible drivers, especially with Dan Gurney, because not only was he so talented on the racetrack, but also he was just a really good guy. Anybody who knew him, anybody who was around him, anybody who talked to him, know just how, uh, what a, just a stellar guy he was, both uh, on and off the track. You mentioned some huge names there. They've had success across multiple motorsport categories. Did you have a aspiration in particular? Like, did you go, look, I want to race IndyCar, I want to race Formula One, I want to race NASCAR. What were the goals as a kid? Well, you know, it's just getting to the next race. <laughs> I could not, you know, because of where I grew up in the background, the thought of getting to the Indy 500 was never, the Daytona 500 was never, never seemed like a reality. All I could think about was that next race in front of me and trying to win that next race in front of me and, um, you know, trying to get that next opportunity and, and keep knocking on doors and keep winning races and keep winning championships. And, um, you know, actually came down to uh, New Zealand and, and raced go-karts down there, uh, raced in actually with, with Eric and Senna, raced with him in Italy at the World Championships, uh, raced in Hong Kong. Now, this is all in go-karts and trying to expand the name, trying to just continue to get more success and um, just continually trying to build on, on that reputation of, of just being a winner. Shortly thereafter, Ford signed me to a three-year uh, three-year contract for 86, 87, 88, and we won four championships in uh, three years. What was it like sharing a car with um, with Caitlyn Jenner? And you had success winning uh, at Sebring in 1986 as well. He, he was an incredible driver. You know, you see these um, athletes from other sports or celebrities come and drive and a lot of times they get the opportunity, but they don't have a lot of ability. However, with, with Bruce, he, he, did, uh, he did a fabulous job. Um, he, he was great as a teammate. He was great as a supporter of mine and, and helping me uh, uh, with my career and trying to help move it forward, uh, getting those opportunities. Uh, and just a great guy to be around. We're still friends. Um, in fact, uh, Caitlin and I have been uh, he's going to be running for the governor of California. So I was texting back and forth with him uh, late last week about about the news with her. Sorry, I still get confused um, about uh, his aspirations now to go into government. One of the memories I want to get your thoughts on right now is 1988. So this is a year where you made your IndyCar debut. It was for Dick Simon Racing to begin the season. Talk about how that all came together and then uh, the drive that you ended up with later in the year. Well, it all came together because I had to put my money where my mouth was. (laughs) (laughs) I took all the money that I had at the time um, and borrowed and begged from anybody that would give me anything. Uh, ended up coming together with about $75,000, which would be more like probably $250,000 in this day day and age, uh, on one ride. And Dick Simon was that team in IndyCar where you could go rent a ride for a weekend. Uh, I had to get that opportunity to, um, you know, get in front of the IndyCar drivers, get in front of the IndyCar sponsors, and show them that that this now sports car driver uh, that had just got done winning, you know, two championships, working on his third at the time, uh, could in fact be a really good open wheel driver or IndyCar driver. And so in that race, um, we, we qualified well. We ran very strong. We ran uh, top 10. But just from that one race, uh, getting that opportunity to get in front of. So I did the. I did the, the sports car race on Saturday of Long Beach and then the IndyCar race on Sunday. So I was quite the busy guy jumping Friday from car to car, Saturday from car to car, qualifying, racing, uh, and then uh, on Sunday racing the, the IndyCar. Um, but just from that race, getting that opportunity where, uh, again, uh, guys started looking at Scott Pruitt going, wow, I guess, I guess he can drive an open wheel. And then later on in the year, Kevin Kogan broke his arm 
So I got a call from the machinist union and they said, Hey, hi, would you like to come drive for us? And I said, of course. And, uh, I did a couple races for those guys that year, uh, ran very well. Uh, we had uh, a few issues, but ran very strong. That got the eyes of Budweiser and True Sports because Bobby Rahal moved to a different uh, IndyCar team. That left the ride open with True Sports and Budweiser. And um, here I am, this young guy, a new press talent, uh, and, and you know, arguably a perfect fit uh, for that team and for that sponsor uh, as they move forward in, in, in 1989. So uh, you know, getting in front of those people, showing really well, uh, just put me in, in, in really good positions. And then ultimately signing on with, with Budweiser later that year uh, for a three-year contract starting in 89. They ran 89, 90, and 91. Your first season in IndyCar, 1989, you mentioned replacing Bobby Rahal at True Sports. Boy, this was a very successful rookie, rookie season. You were the rookie of the year. You had 10 top five finishes, podiums at Detroit and Meadowlands. Tell me, like, what was going through your mind in that debut year in IndyCar? Well, I wish I would have got a win, but, you know, <laughs> that's just being a, you know, a rookie, being greedy, it was a great year. I mean, for a rookie, um, finishing ahead of Danny Sullivan and Rick May, I mean, the guys that I beat, I finished eighth in the championship that year. Incredible season, and I'm getting ready for the next season. Um, I got my rookie stripes off. Uh, I'm getting ready to go, you know, just get to it uh, next year, uh, starting 1990. And then, uh, and then unfortunately, we were testing, testing down in Miami, West Palm Beach specifically. And um, we had a brake failure, not really a brake failure, but um, when the mechanics didn't get a bleeder screw tightened up on the rear caliper, um, the, the bleeder screw came undone, the pedal went to the floor. Uh, went off the end of the front straight, uh, head on into cement barriers. They figured the point of impact was about 100 and just crushed my legs and, and um, uh, tied me up in the car. And I remember it because it didn't hit my head. I remember everything, um, you know, losing the brakes, hitting the wall, bouncing off the wall, looking at my legs just wrapped up in all this, you know, debris. And it was a mess. And, um, and then it took them an hour and a half to cut me out of the car. Um, even though they had jaws of life there, it wouldn't cut through carbon. So they had to cut me out with hacksaws. Um, I knew my legs were screwed. Uh, I had no idea I had broke my back at the time. They finally got me out of the car, um, stuck me in the helicopter. And I remember everything of, of them uh, cutting me out of the car, getting me out of the car, getting me in the, uh, um, in the helicopter to, off to the hospital. Um, and then, um, I got to, I mean, then it's, it was, you know, here I, here I, um, go get stabilized at the local hospital in West Palm. They air back me to Indianapolis where all the IndyCar surgeons are, um, uh, you know, six, seven hour surgery, put my legs back together, six, seven hour surgery to put my uh, back back together. Uh, a few days later, uh, I was, uh, blessed to turn and happy to be alive, turning 30 years old, laying in a hospital bed, uh, both legs casted, um, back broken, and um, and that's a pretty defining moment at that point. Um, it, it's um, I think for athletes because you're you're either never going to come back because you're scared, or you're going to try and come back but you never get your edge back. Or you come on, come back and have a successful career. So I'm happy to say that uh, I came back and had a uh, successful career. Well, let's look at 1995. So this year you returned to IndyCar full-time with Patrick Racing after having done some testing there with them and Firestone. What a strong year this was. You know, you're seventh in the championship, six top fives, Four podiums, however, the most memorable moment I would imagine it would, be, would have been your very first win. Talk me through your first ever win. Uh, it was incredible. Um, you know, we were so close to winning the Indy 500. Uh, unfortunately, got into a little oil in the closing stages. Um, um, uh, running second, chasing down the leader. Um, felt like that was that missed race that... that I, winning Indy 500 would have been so great. 
and then coming back to Michigan and, and making it happen and making it happen in such a dramatic way. Um, I think it's still one of the highest rated ever uh, IndyCar races from a TV standpoint. Um, the closing stages with Lil Al and myself, he passes me um, going underneath the white flag. Uh, got a good draft, uh, passes me. Michigan is a two-mile uh, high bank oval. Um, great track, um, multiple uh, lanes to race in. And so he's trying to shake me off. We go down uh, through one and two. He's trying to shake, shake the draft as he goes down the back straight. I shake to the inside. He counters, and I go right to the high side and, and stick it there. Um, and it was going to be checkers or records, man. It was, I went to the high side. Uh, I didn't know how things were going to work out. And then to get my first uh, IndyCar victory by inches was absolutely incredible. Well, yeah, well, 1997, you know, uh, a lot of the Australian fans here, of course, would remember you getting your win on the streets of Surfers Paradise, a place that holds a lot of yeah. fond memories for you. Talk me through that weekend and that lead-up period to that race. Well, I mean, I, I mean, you look at my record at Surfers, it's, Fifth, fourth, third, second, first. <laughs> year after year after year after year. It was, it was the, you know, I love the track. I love the country. I love the people. And um, I'll let you in on a little secret. Um, my youngest daughter might have been conceived, probably conceived in, uh, in Australia. So, um, you do the math and uh, it's pretty clear. So um, we love it there. Um, we absolutely, we, we looked, um, Actually, while we were down there, we kind of looked around at different places, thinking uh, maybe this is an opportunity for a place to make our home. Uh, and um, um, just absolutely were embraced by, uh, by, by the public down in Australia. They, they were wonderful and, and courteous and just really absolutely fantastic across the board. Just never, never have I been anywhere, I think, better than that. Well, you talk about that love affair with Australia and another awesome opportunity that presented itself to you in 1997 was getting to drive at Bathurst in a V8 supercar alongside Alan Jones, who's Australia, one of Australia's most iconic race car drivers, and a very young driver named Jason Bright, who would go on to have plenty of success in his motorsport career. Tell me, how did you get that, that seat in a V8 supercar? Well, I think because of all those years of success down in Australia on the IndyCar side and uh, Bathurst being one of those iconic races. Racers want to race iconic races, um, and, and Bathurst is, is one of those. And, and getting that opportunity was, uh, was a once-in-a-lifetime, and you can't say no. You, you, you got to, yeah, of course, I want to be there. I wish we would have had simulators back then because my life would have been a lot easier trying to, you know, learn uh, Mount Panorama. Um, it's such a difficult, such a challenging track that um, it, it, you know, you're kind of thrown in the deep end trying to learn that place in a few pr uh, practice sessions and then a race. But uh, absolutely fantastic. Working together with, with Jason and, and uh, Alan Jones was, was fantastic. That's, well, that's when you talk about those iconic drivers that you got that opportunity to race against. Oh, race with. And, and what was, how did the car compare to everything else that you'd driven at that point? Um, it, was, uh, it, it, was, uh, it was a little different, actually, obviously sitting on the opposite side. And not that we haven't, um, in some of the sports cars I've driven over the years, like, like the Jaguars, uh, XJR12, XJR14, uh, they, they actually sat on that, um, on that same side. Um, so that wasn't really the big deal, but, um, just learning, um, learning the car, learning the track, they're, they're a little heavier. They were on smaller tires, uh, at the time, uh, good power. And it just took, uh, it was just one of those, it was just a little bit more as in everything. It takes a bit for drivers to figure them out. They all, you know, all great drivers will figure out their car. Uh, just sometimes, uh, you just have to. It takes a bit to get your, get your head around them. You're one of the most successful drivers to drive for Chip Ganassi, which is quite a, an awesome achievement considering all the great drivers that I've driven for him over the years. What is he like, you know, like away from the cameras? He is, um, you know what, he's got the ability to put the right guys in place. He's able to, um, you know, he takes gambles on guys. 
you know, like, like, like Zanardi. Nobody knew Zanardi. He took a gamble on him and it paid off. He's taken a gamble on a few other guys, haven't paid off. Scott Dixon, he would be the most successful uh, driver that Chip ever had. I'd probably be the second most successful as far as wins. And um, that's some pretty good company. He's, uh, he's, he spends the money in the right places, and uh, he puts good talent in and around uh, his drivers and his teams. Talk us through that decision in 2018 to finally retire from motorsport. 50 years, 50-year career, like we said. Well, it gets to a point where, one, if we're fortunate, um, and I'm talking about all athletes, if you were fortunate enough to be able to decide when we want to walk out uh, and be done, uh, which I was, I'm, I'm the one who made that decision. Um, and you also have to give respect to the sport that has been so good to you. You don't, um, you know, believe me, from my 40s on, uh, from my 50s on, especially, all I got from, from, you know, the media was, when are you going to retire? When are you going to retire? When are you going to retire? And then when I announced my retirement, they said, well, why are you retiring? <laughs> so <laughs> it was, um, you know what? I made it 50 years in a, in a sport that, that I truly loved. Um, uh, getting the opportunity to spend a little more time with my family, uh, getting that opportunity to be able to look back and talk about 50 years of, of, of success in, in racing. Um, and to be blessed doing it. Um, it, it, it was the right, it was the right moment for me. Definitely. Well, I want to just quickly mention, you know, like you've had this time away from the sport now as a driver, do you still watch many of the championships? I know 2020 was very compromised with COVID happening and not many championships being able to have full seasons, but do you get to watch many races now? I do. I don't go to races unless I have a reason to go to race. Like, I'm not that driver who likes to go hang out. Um, you know, if I have something to do, like being a grand marshal, driving a pace car, um, giving fast rides, you know, sometimes going to Daytona, um, Lexus provided me a, a car, when, you know, we were in a production car, you know, a GSF and we're rolling past start finish at 170 miles an hour with three other people in the car with me. Um, you know, that's some fun adrenaline rushing uh, stuff that that uh, that I still get to do, but um, I do uh, watch my friends when you know I, I pick up races to watch the NASCAR. Um, so I'll call, call you know an IndyCar race. Uh, Colton Herta went over the weekend. Um, same thing with NASCAR. I don't really watch Talladega, uh, Talladega that much. The super speedways because they're restrictor plate and it's just a crapshoot. Um, but yeah, I still uh, follow the um, Lexus program and, and IMSA and, and have a lot of friends. So um, I definitely kind of, you know, look out of sight of my eye and kind of keep, keep track of what's going on. And, and what do you make about how everything's evolved in motorsport? You know, like NASCAR have tried stage racing over the past few years. IndyCar's fr- tried a few different things. Formula One's constantly trying different things. What do you think about the direction of motorsport? That's a really good question. We, we, we talk about that quite often because you have all these things going on in the world right now. Um, I, I've never been a fan of BOP racing, um, balance of performance. Um, oh, my wife is, is, uh, happens to be sitting across from me right now, and that's a, that's a term we don't get to use in our house anymore, uh, <laughs> BOP. Balance of performance. That's a bad word in this house. Um, but I, I I really loved when when you didn't have traction control and you didn't have ABS and you don't have paddle shifts and uh, I know it's you know when you look at the you know racing and yeah it continues to move forward but there is also that purity where you have to let the drivers drive let let them be the ones who uh, have to bring all their abilities together um, instead of making it easier and easier for them. Uh, the racing isn't as uh, uh, exciting to watch um, because you aren't making mistakes, you aren't locking up brakes, you aren't, you know, using up the rear tires too hard. You're not doing some of these things that typically over the years would, would cause different um, uh, challenges for, for the drivers and those who manage it better than not. And then you have, you know, hybrid coming on. And, and when are we going to see, you know, next year in sports cars, we're going to see um, more hybrid technology than we have now. And, 
uh, more of a global series, which I think is good where you have IMSA being able to go race at, uh, at Le Mans and vice versa. You got the supercars coming. Toyota's been doing a bunch of, um, I mean, the hypercars coming. Toyota's been doing a bunch of testing with, with their new car coming. And that's going to be uh, new and exciting. Uh, I think we're, we're just on the verge of seeing some uh, interesting technologies moving forward. Um, I think the, the, the landscape certainly is changing. Uh, the good thing that we're seeing is the safety improvements continually, uh, not just in race cars, but in race tracks, safer barriers, more runoff areas. Um, getting rid, rid of um, guardrail, which we've seen in Formula One, has been so dangerous with a, with a horrendous fire last year. Um, I think that, um, you know, it's, it's an interesting time. And not just an interesting time for racing, but also an interesting time for, for the automotive industry. You know, as we're looking at full electric or hybrid or hybrid plug-in or, or hydrogen or, you know, what is that next, that next thing? And, and it's going to be interesting. Well, yeah, you know, you mentioned the safety stuff there, even, you know, in the early part of 2021, we've seen how beneficial it has been with some huge shunts in Formula One and IndyCar and how it's really proven to be its worth. Now, we've talked about this huge career that you've had in motorsport. I know this is probably going to be a very difficult question. However, if you had to give us your top three moments from your motorsport career, what would they be, Scotty? (laughs) Winning in Australia. (laughs) <laughs> winning the Michigan 500 um, and winning my fifth, uh, probably winning my fifth overall victory at the Rolex 24. Sidebar to that is uh, three Hall of Fame, my three Hall of Fames. Fantastic. And what does the future hold for you, Scotty? What are you hoping to do in the future? Well, we got our little vineyard and winery here, that uh, Pruitt Vineyard, which is um, my fun little passion uh, that we've um, actually in 2012, we were tied with an Australian uh, producer uh, called Molly Duker for the highest rated Syrah in the world, which is very cool. Uh, so we do, we do that. We're very small. We do that. Uh, continually doing my work with Lexus, continually doing a little bit of work also with uh, Rolex and um, just enjoying life. Fantastic. Well, one of the things that we didn't get to speak about, however, I'm sure you would have been very proud of as well, was a children's book that you did release and you sold, what was it, like 100,000 yeah. copies? <laughs> yes, yes, we have. Yep. Fantastic. Well, Scotty Pruitt. Race cars, 12 normal race cars, uh, racing through the alphabet and rookie racer. Yeah, those were, those were uh, iconic. Um, Really wonderful looking back at some of those things. Well, there you go. Well, Scotty Pruitt, it's been an, it's been such a pleasure to speak with you today. And I'm sure I speak on behalf of many Australians and wishing you all the very best. And say hi to your family at home. I certainly will. And Jason, you have used up all the voice I have in this interview. So uh, I, gave, I gave you my all in my voice. So just, just so you know. Thank you very much, Scotty. Really appreciate it and take it easy. <laughs> Uh, Great talking to you. Thank you. Scott Pruitt there joining us on the podium. What a career it has been. And what an awesome set of stories there from Scott Pruitt. If you want to catch an extended version of that interview with Scott, head over to your favourite podcasting platforms. It's probably where you're listening to this podcast and you can catch the extended version of our interview with Scott Pruitt. Right after this, we're going to go from one multi-talented individual to another multi-talented individual. Jessica Dane is going to be joining us up next on the podium. This is the podium where we celebrate the best from the world of motorsport. And our next guest is one of the key people involved in the day-to-day running of Triple Eight Race Engineering. She's now also part of the broadcast coverage for the Australian Racing Group. I speak of Jessica Dane. Jess, thanks so much for joining us on the podium. Hi, thank you very much for having me. Now, Jess, you know, a lot of people are already aware of what you do with Triple Eight Race Engineering. However, this new role that's come about this year, how did it come about? And yeah, I understand that you already have a background in journalism, isn't that right? <laughs> yeah, I seem to have a, have a few different strings to my bow now if I look back at my CV. But um, it came about last year. I actually got approached, um, got a call one day from Gary Rogers, of all people, who, of course, is, um, is a major part of 
the uh, the Australian Racing Group, and he called me and asked if I'd be interested in joining the broadcast team. And I thought, oh, <laughs> it's been it's been a long time since I last held a microphone. Um, but yeah, never one to turn down a challenge. And of course, last year. Um, None of the ARG events happened. Um, the Shannon's Motorsport Australia Championships didn't didn't happen at all because of COVID. So it's been fantastic this year. We kicked off at Simmons Plains, and yeah, that was my first time in front of the camera holding the microphone instead of answering the questions for a very long time. But I I have a background in broadcast journalism uh, back when I was in the UK. But I actually decided then that I wasn't particularly good at asking questions and then listening to the answer in order to <laughs> ask the next question. So I decided that I should probably leave that side of it to someone else. And I was um, I was uh, producing for a bit um, before I came back to Australia and got stuck into supercars. And then apart from briefly dabbling in TV production in 2015, again, as, as a producer, not in front of the camera, um, apart from that, I thought that my TV days were long behind me, but I am absolutely loving it. I love the challenge. Thankfully, I think that I have improved <laughs> since I last attempted to be a broadcaster in front of the camera, um, which is very fortunate. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely loving it. Great challenge, great group of people and feel very fortunate to have been given the opportunity. Well, yeah, you mentioned that debut at Simmons Plains there with the ARG group. Were there nerves going into that weekend? Because, you know, it's a very different role from what you're accustomed to at a race weekend. <laughs> How did you prepare yeah, for there it? Were, there were certainly nerves. Um, prepared for it by doing as much research as I possibly could because the great fun thing about getting involved with ARG is that I'm being exposed to and working in categories that I haven't been involved in before. So everything from TCM and Trans Am through to, although I don't directly work on the TCR and S5000 broadcasts, it's great to be working in the pit lane with those teams and seeing how they function and getting up close and personal with the cars, which I haven't done before. Um, and that's all, yeah, it's, it's great fun. As long as you've done your research, then it's not too bad. But thankfully, I don't typically get too nervous about stuff if I know that I'm in control of my own destiny. Um, <laughs> as soon as we're, I'm, I'm terrible. I'm the worst at the Bathurst 1000. It's that Sunday is a day of pure nerves for me, purely because I, um, once the cars go out on track, I know that there is absolutely nothing I can do to influence the performance of the cars. And that makes me more nervous. If something is within my control, I don't tend to get nervous. So thankfully, when I'm um, broadcasting, when I'm doing the TV stuff, because I know that I'm the only person in charge of my actions who can control what I'm doing, I don't get too nervous. But there is always that kind of little flutter of excitement in the butterflies before you go live. That that's just all part of the fun. Well, you mentioned there going through all the garages. There's a few teams there that are connected to supercars. What is it like stepping into the garages of some of your supercar competitors? <laughs> it's um. Uh, to be honest, it's nothing. Um, it feels a little bit weird at first, especially in GT. So at the Bathurst Six Hour, we had Triple Eight Race Engineering running a car in the Australian GT Championship, and it was a bit strange for me then going down to the Melbourne Performance Centre garage <laughs> and standing in there waiting to ambush Chaz and Garth when they jumped out of the Audis. To, to do a quick interview during the race. So, um, yeah, that, that was a little bit strange. But, no, fortunately, um, it's not it's not too – it's not uncomfortable or anything like that. Everyone makes you feel very welcome. And because there's obviously no trade secrets going between, um, at, you know, Triple Eight and any of the TCR S5000 teams, it's, nobody has an issue with it. And one of the great things about motorsport is – it's such a friendly and welcoming atmosphere that no matter what you're doing, um, everybody just wants to make make it fun and and everyone's there just to enjoy themselves at the end of the day. Well, that's the thing. You've managed to interview a few people that you're very close with, like SVG and even Garth Tander. What are they like to interview? Do they? How are they responding to you? <laughs> um, I actually have not been more well as i said don't really get nervous but i was dreading for the whole of the six hour the times when i had to interview shane and um roland and fortunately they both were extremely business like in fact it was actually quite boring <laughs> if i think back <laughs> i 
I was I was so well prepared and I you know had everything I was so armed for them to make my life extremely hard and they were both complete professionals which in hindsight was actually quite boring um but I guess it did make my job easier We've well, just mentioned SVG there. Let's talk about supercars. The championship this season started at Bathurst, where it finished off in 2020. Was it weird for you starting the championship season at Bathurst? And talk about SVG's awesome run there. Yeah, we've had um, had quite a different start to the year. With starting at Bathurst, having been there, I felt I felt like I was practically living at Bathurst over the last few months, which is not a bad place to feel like you're living, I might add. Um, but yeah, it was it was strange going there. Adelaide is one of my favourite events, so it was a real shame not to have that as the season opener as we're used to. But um, going to Bathurst anytime is very, very special and to go there after winning the one thousand and then be and then be able to back it up in such form was Oh, it was a it was a dream start to the year, um, and then Shane, of course, has had this fantastic run um, through until that last race at Simmons Plains, which is the first time in a long time that we haven't had a car on the podium in, in race three at Tassie. But to be honest, that's I mean, it's it's good for the sport as much as we enjoy winning at Triple Eight. We're always very conscious about what is what it, we're we're always looking at the big picture of the sport, and if you have one team dominating, that's not good for the sport so on one hand you've got to love seeing Shane on that on that run and I think anybody who can appreciate not just motorsport but sport in general can really appreciate that we have seen something really really special in the dominance that he has shown in in the performance that he's shown not only doing it (laughs) as a driver but as a driver with one arm after he broke his collarbone and broke three ribs to go with it so that's been that's been really special. But on the other hand, we're always thinking about um, what's best for the sport and what gives the fans the most entertainment. And um, if we've got other people like Cam, like Chaz, um, those guys, and, and hopefully we're seeing more of Anton and Will up the front as well, um, dicing it out at the front, then it's only good for the sport and the entertainment package. Definitely. Well, you mentioned that injury. I'm sure there would have been a lot of nerves within the Triple Eight organisation between Bathurst and Sandown. Tell me, how close was he not to competing that weekend? And when did you finally know that he'd actually be right to go? Oh, I think we, in my head, I never really, and maybe I'm maybe I'm speaking out of turn here, but certainly in my head, I never really thought that he wouldn't and I know we we always left it down until that first practice session the first time he took the curbs at Sandown to see how he felt um and that was the telling factor as soon as he did that and knew he was okay then we knew we were in the clear for the weekend but I also know Shane and it would have taken an awful awful lot to stop him doing everything he could to get in the car and on top of that I know this team and the way that the whole team banded together to get Shane in the position to even drive the car, let alone win, was just phenomenal. The what what you don't appreciate when you're watching Shane come from seventeenth to first is how much everybody worked together to give him the environment in order for him to be able to do that. Um and we're not just talking about modifications to the car. Um, we're talking about how everyone was was in some way involved in his recovery and um, how we looked after the environment around him to create the best possible mental space for him to prepare properly. So an awful lot goes into it, and I was so so proud to see everybody band together and and get that result as a team, not just as Shane as an individual driver. Um, so yeah, for me, I I kind of it wasn't it wasn't in that much doubt, but that also shows the faith that I have in our team physio Chris Brady who has been um he's been the backbone of Shane's recovery really and we owe an awful lot to him a great deal of gratitude um to him for all his work in getting Shane to where he was as quickly as as quickly as he was there and, and is there now. We're still managing things of course. I mean the broken ribs aren't going to fix themselves overnight and every time he gets in the car it probably takes his recovery a step back. But we're always finding ways to make him more comfortable and to make sure that he can be as at the top of his game as he possibly can be in the circumstances. Well, definitely. Well, yeah, six wins in a row to start the season. Quite impressive. Jamie Wingcup, of course, had a win as well at Tassie. 
Your team, seven wins out of eight this season. Look like you're going to run away with the championship. Tell me, what are the changes that have been made to this year's car that has made it leaps and bounds above all the competition? <laughs> can never speak too soon. <laughs> never, <laughs> never talk about running away with championships or anything because there's still an awful long way to go. Um, I don't think it's so much changes with the car. There hasn't been a great deal of change coming into um, 21 because, of course, there's been massive focus on Gen 3 and preparing for 2022. So, um, you know, there hasn't there hasn't been a great deal of change or development. I think the team is just in a really good place. Um, we you you always feel as good as your last race, and for us at the back of 2020, that was coming off the back of a Bathurst 1000 win. So we came in. Um, already kind of still riding that Bathurst 1000 wave, um, which, you know, isn't the usual way to finish a season because Bathurst 1000 is not usually the season finale. But, um, yeah, I think the just the way that the team is working together this year is very strong. We're, we had such a difficult year. We as, as a sport, not, um, you know, at Triple Eight as a Brisbane-based team, we had it a lot easier than the Melbourne-based teams. But we as a sport were coming off the back of a very difficult year. So there was definitely a feeling of optimism coming into this year that we know how to manage COVID. We know how to go racing in these circumstances. And we know that for Triple Eight's perspective, we can win while we're in those circumstances. So, um, yeah, there was an element of confidence Um coming in and, and belief that we that we can do this in this weird COVID environment that we're living in um, but yeah also the, the culture is good at the moment everybody's enjoying everyone else's company um, and we're in a state of um, expansion as well like we've got exciting stuff going on at Triple Eight we've got a new workshop down the road to which we're moving all of our manufacturing and we're increasing our involvement in um, customer racing and other categories and that that kind of thing, which is giving people opportunities to work in different areas and expand their skills and their um, and their knowledge in other areas, which always comes back to helping their performance on yep. um, on supercars. So, yeah, there's a, there's a lot going on, and I think we're just as a team, we're in a really good place. For sure. Well, there's been a lot of huge announcements from your team this season. First of all, though, I want to ask you about this Bathurst wildcard entry because this kind of took the whole motorsport community by surprise. Bringing Russell Lingle back <laughs> out of retirement and teaming him up with Brock Feeney, whose mastermind idea was this and how long did it take to, to get all sorted? <laughs> to be honest, it, it, it always surprises me that it's, <laughs> that it's a surprise to other people because obviously we've been working on it for, for a while as these things, these things come to... Um, comes to the public eye after a great deal of planning in the back end. So, um, yeah, I'm glad that people were surprised. <laughs> that means that everybody did, did a good job of keeping quiet about it. Um, but, yeah, we've had we've had the fantastic support from Super Chief Auto this year. They're, of course, a new partner of ours, and um, they have been – they've come to the party kind of full full kilt and – that full tilt, sorry. And um, – and it's it's been great fun working with them, and they say, "Can we do this?" And we say, "You know what? Why not?" Um, so yeah, it's been it's been a fun project, and I'm really excited to go to Bathurst with the third car. We did that in 2013 as well with the Xbox car, and they had a fantastic run. They finished in the top ten. They finished tenth, um, which with two foreign drivers, one of whom had never been to Bathurst in his life, was a really really impressive result. So we're hoping that we can go better with, um, of course, we're, we're hoping to, to get a really solid um, result with the super cheap auto car and Russell and Brock. And I think Russell's greatly <laughs> relishing the opportunity to get back behind the wheel of one of these cars. And of course, the cars have changed a lot from when he last drove. So um, it's a bit of a learning curve for him that you know, they talk about you can't teach old dogs new tricks, but I reckon, <laughs> I reckon we can, uh, this might be an exception to that rule. For sure. Well, you mentioned bringing a third car back for Bathurst. You guys, of course, used to have three cars within your team. There's a lot of RECs on the market at the moment. Has your team expressed a desire to maybe bring another car back into the fold again in the future? No, no, leave that to someone else. We always said we would only run a third car for Craig and... Craig's not coming back in, back into full-time driving. 
um, at least as far as he's told us. So, um, hey, if he chooses to, if he decides that one day I might might come back into full-time driving, then he knows that he's the only person who we'd run a third car for if, if it all stacked up. No worries. Well, the other huge talking point began just before the Supercar Championship started, and it all involved the ownership around Triple Eight. So RD stepping down at the end of this season, Jamie Winkup retiring from his full-time driving role and becoming the team principal and managing director of the organisation. Tell me, how long were these talks in place? It all happened very quickly, actually. Um, I think, you know, I had just said that these things have been in planning a lot longer, um, you know, that these things start being planned a lot earlier than when they come to the public eye. But in that case, it all happened, it all happened very quickly. Um, so talk started late 2020. Um, I sat down with Queenie for the first time in, I think it was November. Um, and it all kind of, and, and Jamie had sat down with him before that as well. And Queenie is really about, the um about the future of triple eight and about the future of motorsport and it's wonderful to have somebody of his passion so invested in triple eight and sport um and yeah so jamie and i both sat down with him individually and he was it kind of felt like he was <laughs> he was auditioning us but then he said oh it feels like you're auditioning me and um so yeah i guess it works both ways we need to make sure that the person coming into triple eight is the is the right person you know we would never just kind of sell such a we would never sell any of it let alone such a big chunk of it to to just anyone um so yeah it all came came together very quickly and very smoothly because i think when you've got people who are all aligned and motivated aligned in the same direction and motivated to the same level these things are very very easy and it has been nothing but that smooth sailing so far quinny tony quinn is a is an absolute asset to the team. You know, he's not involved in the day-to-day running, but when he is here, um, he's a pleasure to have around the workshop. We had a board meeting, our first board meeting just yesterday, actually. And, um, yeah, everyone's always very happy to see him. He tries to get to know most of the team. He wants to understand the people. And he's really passionate about the direction in which the company is going. So, um, yeah, it was it was a big shake-up, but um, one that's definitely been really excellent so far well the huge story as well was jamie winkup announcing that he'll be retiring tell me what direction do you think the team will look at next year with filling that role will they look to employ a rookie or an experienced driver because you guys have got angelo mazuris and brock feeney there of course already within the organization uh we spoke to jack perkins recently and he said that you guys should even consider maybe a Chaz mostert if he can somehow come <laughs> over to the come over to the team and has Russell Ingle even expressed an interest in, in taking that role? <laughs> I think if uh, if we're looking to the to bring somebody back, Russell might have to beat off Craig, <laughs> <laughs> um, Craig and Garth actually. No, we'll um, we do we've got a you know a short list of of kind of six people who who are all genuine potentials, and that ranges from current supercars drivers to bringing in some of those young kids i mean between angelo and brock they're extremely talented and unfortunately because of covid last year we didn't get a chance to see too much of that but we started off the year at bathurst um with a front row lockout and a one-two finish which is just i mean they're they're two excellent drivers so they've both got a lot of promise um but then yeah you also have to look at they've by the end of this year, they will have each had one year of Super 2 under their belt. So then you've also got to look at, well, is, is that enough? Is that enough to step into main game? Do we need an option in case they we don't feel like they're, they're ready enough, any of those young guys are ready enough? And there are an awful lot of very talented current drivers, um, current supercars drivers who might be suitable. Um, so, yeah, it's, it feels like it's... Um, it feels like we're not as prepared for this decision as we would otherwise, as, as most decisions that we usually are prepared for, if that makes sense. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, very, it's probably more wide open than we thought that it would be, but that's only because there is such a high calibre of driver vying for the seat. Yeah, well... At the announcement at the beginning of the season with the changes to the ownership structure and roles there at the at the team, uh, it was said that Roland Dav- 
Roland Dane would be providing a lot of tutelage to Jamie throughout the season. How's that been going so far? And how's Jamie feeling about this new role next season? Yeah, I think it's, well, it's to be honest, it's tutelage to both of us. Um, because although Jamie gets the Jamie has the, the titles of team principal and managing director, um, it's very much going to be a joint effort between us, especially at, with the rate that Triple Eight is expanding. You know, we're not just supercars. We've also got Super 2. We've got GT. Both of those programs are expanding um, and there's plenty of opportunity in other categories. So Jamie and I are very much working together and we're learning as much as we can. Um, a lot of it is learning by osmosis with, with RD. <laughs> but that's um, that's often the sometimes the best way to learn. We have to sit back and, and observe and try and just be sponges. We really just need to be sponges this year. And um, it's important for both of us that we don't approach it as though we're trying to replace RD because he is a very unique character. He has a very unique management method and it has worked. I mean, Triple Eight has been the most successful team of almost the last two decades. So it's really a case for Jamie and me of working out what our style of leadership is and how we can extract the very best from the team while giving them the best possible working environment. And uh, yeah, that's what this year is all about, really. So it's about about observing, of listening, of absorbing as much as we can, and then hopefully putting in, it into uh, successful practice next year. So uh, stay tuned. <laughs> Definitely, definitely. Well, short term, we've got the Bend coming up and then the win, the Winton round of the championship just after that. How do you think the team will be performing at those events? Oh, look, the Bend wasn't great for us last year. Um, we, when we obviously didn't go to Winton, um, but all we can do is just not sit back and rest on our laurels. We, we very, we don't do that anyway, but um, we need to approach every track as if we're coming to it um coming to it completely fresh and green and revising notes from previous years but also taking on board everything we've learned since we were last there which considering we haven't been to winton in a in a very long time the cars have evolved since then um obviously more similar the uh the cars are more similar to for the bend um as last time we were there at the towards the end of last year so there's certainly learnings that we can take from that. So never, never kind of put expectations on ourselves to to do to perform at a certain level. We always have to come in and expect to do to do um, not not badly. We would never expect ourselves to do badly, but um, never never think that we're going to be better than anyone else because that's when that's when you stay hungry. That's what makes you push for the strong cars when you roll out of the truck and um, I think that's where we've been strong this year actually is, is having those good setups when we roll out of the truck so we will see how we uh, how we go come the bend and then Winton but they're always great fun places to go to uh, the bend is just a phenomenal circuit and Winton is um, Winton is one of those places that looks complex uh, sorry that looks simple on paper but then you go into it and it's actually it's actually pretty complex um, and create some good racing. So, yeah, looking forward to, to heading to both of those places over the next month or so. For sure. Well, one thing that not many listeners would know is that you're also doing a law degree at the moment, juggling everything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> juggling everything. How do, you balance, how do you balance everything at the moment? Not entirely sure, to be honest. I get asked that quite a lot. <laughs> and, um, I kind of just approach each day as it comes. And I'm luckily for me, I'm quite good at my own personal time management so I'm certainly not one of those people who will be glued to my computer trying to cram trying to use every single minute of the day um, to get study in I, I like to lead a balanced life so you know I've had a whole two weekends at home which <laughs> which feels a bit bizarre but um, came off the back of a few race weekends in a row across all the stuff that I'm doing and had the first weekend, which was Tazzy, so I watched Tazzy from from the sofa at home. But um, had a nice sociable weekend that weekend, watching watching the racing with mates and catching up with the people who I haven't seen for a while because I have been on the road so much. And then full knowing that this long weekend that we've just had, um, I would have to spend the best part of three solid days with my head down pumping out a competition law assignment. Um, and got there in the end, but um, yeah, I'm I'm fortunate that I can I'm good with 
managing my time. I'm not one for leaving assignments to the last minute or anything like that. <laughs> and looking ahead, I've got some uh, got some major deadlines coming up over probably what's going to be the busiest six weeks of the year for me, um, which I cannot wait for. And I, to be honest, I relish being that busy. I absolutely love it. And having had two weeks at home, I'm wondering what to do with myself and can't wait to get on a plane to go to Sydney tomorrow for the uh, for the upcoming ARG round at Sydney Motorsport Park. So even though it can feel a little overwhelming when I'm looking at my calendar and wondering how on earth I'm going to get my next three assignments done in the space of five weeks, one of which is a research capstone, which is a major piece of work, um, I just... I look ahead at my calendar and think, okay, I know that on on this day I can dedicate to doing this research, and on that day I know that I could be working in the law firm, which I'm also doing this semester is working in a law firm. Um, so yeah, <laughs> trying to trying to throw everything in, but it's just about how you prioritize your time. Everyone has the same number of hours in a day, and one of my pet hates is people who say that they don't have time to do something because everyone has the same number of hours in a day. It's just how you prioritize them. Definitely. Well, with staying so busy. What do you want to be doing in the future? What's further down the track for you? I can only really think to the end of my law degree, which actually I've had a bit of a I've had a bit of a kind of self revelation recently because I've been saying for the last um, last over two years that my I'm only thinking as far as the end of my law degree, but now my law degree will be finished in February, all going to plan, and um, and I'm like that that's less than a year. I have to start think, genuinely thinking about <laughs> what happens after that. But to be honest, I'm I'm excited to be able to spend more time racing and and hopefully, you know, hopefully the broadcast stuff that I'm doing um, with ARG continues next year. Fingers crossed if, if they want me back. Um, and also I'm working on the Australian Rally Championship, um, hosting the coverage for that championship as well, which I'm absolutely loving. But the fantastic thing about what I've been getting to do is that I'm being exposed to all these different categories of motorsport that I might not necessarily have worked in otherwise and I know that even if I'm not doing the broadcasting side of it next year I definitely want to still be involved in those categories in some way particularly rally so um, you know next year I imagine I will be spending just as much time if not more time doing motorsports um, but without constantly having it hanging over my head that I'm supposed to be writing an assignment or studying for an exam. I reckon, I reckon. Well, Jessica Dane, really appreciate you taking the time out of the very busy schedule that you do have and all the very best with the study, the broadcasting and, of course, the role there at Triple Eight Racing. Thank you so much. It's been been great to chat, good to catch up and uh, hopefully chat to you again soon. Jessica Dane there joining us on the podium and like we just said there, all the very best to her for everything that she's doing in 2021. Right after this, we're going to wrap things up, though, with the Podium of the Week. Yes, time now for the Podium of the Week. And for anyone new to this, welcome. What we do here is we celebrate three performances from the motorsport world over the past week. And we do it in a 3-2-1 format. So let's begin with position number three on the Podium of the Week. And position number three, we're going to give it to a NASCAR Cup Series driver. We're going to give it to Michael McDowell, who has continued to impress this season in the Cup Series. He started off strongly with a win at the Daytona 500. He's having one of his best seasons in the Cup Series, very strong runs, and he continued it again over the weekend with a third-place finish at the iconic Talladega track. So Michael McDowell gets position number three on the podium of the week. Position number two on the podium of the week, we're going to give it to a guy that has competed in Formula One and now he competes in Indy cars. He's had a lot of success in Indy cars. It's Takuma Sato. And over the weekend at St. Petersburg, he unfortunately wasn't able to have the best runs in qualifying. Started out in 15th. However, he stormed his way up through the field. Some very bold overtaking manoeuvres as well. And he managed to finish in position six. So... For that awesome drive over the weekend, Takuma Sato gets position number two on the podium of the week. And position number one on the podium of the week, we're going to give it to a driver competing in the Formula E Championship. His name is Jake Dennis. He's a British driver. And over the weekend at Valencia, he won his first ever race. A lights-to-flag win there for Jake Dennis. So he gets position number one on the podium of the week. 
That's about it, though, for this edition of the show. Hope you've enjoyed it. We'll catch you next time on the podium.